Another random stupid story for you. Well, first of all, just so you know, this is our last week of our practical theology sermon series. Then we are stepping over into an Advent series because, you know, Christmas time, right? Uh, if you didn't know, it's Christ the King Sunday this week. And so we're going to be celebrating Christ as our King. We're going to be talking about that a little bit during our sermon today. That actually becomes very practical for many reasons. But story time for you. In case you don't know, guys, I wasn't always this awesome. I know it's hard to believe, difficult, but it's true. Uh, we're going to talk about humbleness soon, too. That's the fun part, right? Uh, no, joking. I, I used to be a, a very much bigger jerk than I am now, though. Uh, I used to also uh, have no idea who Jesus was. Whenever I grew up, I didn't know who he was whatsoever. I understood the concept of God, and I understood the concept of uh, things like faith, but I didn't have it. I didn't want faith. I didn't care about who God was, right? And I didn't actually believe he really existed. I understood people thought he did, but I thought he was, you know, non-existent. I was an atheist. Uh, and I used to enjoy making fun of people who were Christians. And then one day, whenever I was 16, I went to a meeting after my school uh, that was a group of students that actually had a club that went on after school. Uh, and it, they gave a gospel presentation. And for the first time, I actually ever thought, like, oh, there might be something to this God guy. Didn't become a Christian yet, but at least I was like, okay, there might be something more to this, right? And I promptly forgot it and ignored it and walked away. And about a year later, another friend invited me back to another one. They gave the gospel presentation again, and I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I understand this this time, right? I got it. Got it. This is who Jesus is and what he's done, and he's real, and I understand this, and I believe it. I understand, right? Conversion experience, classic. Classic conversion experience. And I said, this is wonderful, it's awesome, it will change my life forever. And then uh, it, it didn't, obviously. I was a jerk even further. I, I th now became a jerk who was an atheist to a jerk who believed in Jesus. And it just made different people uh, dislike me, right? So I just traded out my audience that enjoyed me to an audience that didn't like me even more. Uh, and I was mean-spirited and angry. Uh, and while I understood who God was, I didn't quite get one very basic concept that is the most practical concept in all of theology I have ever walked through. And it's one that I try really hard to help people understand and grow in and learn. And it's one of the biggest, if, if you can have any takeaway from this sermon series, this is what I want you to take away. All right? This is the big one. You ready for it? Give up. The most practical of theology is just give up already. All right? Now, you may be thinking, give up? That doesn't sound very nice and hopeful and awesome. Like, I thought we were supposed to be victorious. I thought we were supposed to have victory in Jesus and, and be able to overcome everything. Why do I have to give up? This makes no sense. So, when I was 16, I was a jerk. When I was 16 and a half, I was still a jerk. Whenever I was 18, I was still a jerk, right? But something happened whenever I was 18, and I was in Niagara Falls, actually in Buffalo, uh, heading up towards Niagara Falls, which I got to go back to, by the way. Hamilton, worthwhile. Everyone go to it. Anyway, uh, whenever I was in Buffalo when I was 18, I was at a conference, and a whole bunch of weird and random stuff happened that made me uh, realize that God is actually with us regularly and is... Uh, still proclaiming his truth today, and that we can learn more and more about who he is today, right? But one thing actually got stuck in my mind and stuck in my brain, and it was a verse that I actually had written on a t-shirt. That was like an orange t-shirt. It looked like a jumpsuit for prison. And it had like prisoner number across the back and everything. It was super cool, guys, because I was edgy. I also used to have, I also used to have, just so you guys know, and please know this was one of my senior pictures, I also used to have orange camouflage pants that I would wear regularly. I also had a blue pair and a purple and white pair. I had so many pairs of camouflage pants. And yes, one of my senior pictures is me sitting in the woods wearing orange camouflage pants and an orange cutoff t-shirt, just squatting and looking up at the camera. If I had realized I should tell this story right now, I would have a picture of that for you. But we will get you some visual aids. I might post them on my Facebook page for you. You're welcome. That way only like seven of you see it. Because Facebook is bad at showing people stuff. Boom. Anywho. 
I was sitting in there in Buffalo wearing this orange T-shirt, and the front of the shirt had uh, Prisoner for Christ written on it, right? And underneath it, it had Galatians 2.20, which was a verse that I knew and understood and liked, didn't understand it, but it's a verse I was familiar with. And that verse says this. There's a lot of verse here. One second. We've got a lot of Bible to talk about today. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right? The life I live is not my own. It belongs to someone else. I am no longer my own man. I have someone who actually owns me. <laughs> who cares about me deeply and who does love me, but who doesn't want me to do what I want for my own devices. His goal is for me to do what he wants for me to do, to give up of my will and to submit it to his, right? Now, again, this may not be the most uh, normal churchy thing to talk about because sometimes churches today seem to miss this point and argue that the porpoise or the porpoise, the porpoise, the porpoise of God... <laughs> And now we all just see this just like jumping across, right? The purpose of God. You're welcome. I just, just, these are things that you guys will forever remember. Because you'll remember me in orange camo pants and you'll remember the purpose of God. May these stick with you forever, right? The purpose God has for us is not for us to get what we want or desire. Because we often want and desire things that are bad for us, bad for other people, and don't glorify him right? Who here has some form of desire that is not good for you? Mine is hostess cupcakes and many other things, but that is one of them, right? There are so many, but hostess cupcakes rank up there. I desire things that are not good for me. There is no good in a hostess cupcake besides the pleasure that comes from the idea of things tasting good. That is it. The most base, only good thing you can have is the fact that, yeah, I'm happy when I eat them because they're delicious and addictive and going to kill me. Right? What I want and desire is not always the best for me. It may not be the best for other people, too. Sometimes I want things that if I get them will hurt other people. Right? Oh, man. I really want to have the biggest church in the world. It'd be super cool. If we had like 40,000 people in this building, except we'd all die because that would be really tightly packed, right? But, huh? I don't even know what just happened. But us being that large may not actually glorify Jesus because it may actually hinder a couple of things. One, it may hinder work he's doing other places in the city. If everyone is here working through us and doing what we're doing, that might hinder what God is doing in the city, right? And also, if everyone is here gathering and worshiping, that hinders the people that they could have reached otherwise because they're not there anymore, right? I used to pray people would move into Canton who knew Jesus and go to our church because that was the only way I could think for mature Christians to come here without stealing them from other churches, right? But now I don't really want that as much because I hope those mature Christians go wherever God wants them to or stay where they're at so that they can proclaim the gospel there. I want to see that happen, right? The things we want are always the best for us. The things we want are always the best for other people. And the things we want aren't always the best for God, right? There are desires in our hearts that if we receive them, God will not be glorified. And there are desires in our hearts that if we deny them, and say, no, I don't want that. God is glorified through it. Greed, lust, envy, jealousy, strife, uh, the concept of being right, having your pride not hurt. These are all things that we desire deeply, right? 
but just desiring those things, if we receive them, it doesn't actually mean that we've glorified God anymore at all, right? I can gain all of the stuff in the world, but if I don't have God, I've gained nothing. It didn't glorify him whatsoever if it's all about me. You see, the walk of Christianity, the walk of being a follower of Jesus, is not about getting what we want. It's not about becoming our very best selves. It is about submitting ourselves regularly to the one that has his own glory and the world's best at heart. It's about giving up of ourselves and following him. We can see this so many places in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and everywhere. We're just going to go through a bunch of scripture verses today that walk through this concept. In Philippians, Paul is talking about the fact that he has reasons to boast and be prideful. And yeah, we're going to talk about the Acts section today. I added it in there. Anywho, uh, in Philippians, Paul is talking about the fact that if anyone had any reason to boast about how their life is or what they've done or accomplished in life, he'd be the one who's worth boasting. Right? He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless, but whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in God, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he has reason to boast because of who he is and what he's done. He has reason to boast because of his being a Pharisee, born of the tribe of Benjamin, in Hebrew of Hebrews. He is knowledgeable about the law. He is zealous for who God is and what he's done. And because of this, he counts all of that as nothing because of who Jesus is. Because when he compares himself to Jesus, his accomplishments mean nothing. They are not his. He even goes on at different points in Scripture to talk about the ways in which he could possibly boast because of his faith. So this is him boasting about what happened before he was a follower of Jesus, right? And saying the things he would have boasted about then are worthless. He even talks about it again in the future. Uh, it might actually be in the past. I don't remember when these books were written. But anywho, he also talks about it at a different point, as uh, how the things he's done to become a follower of Christ mean nothing, right? And he talks about the fact that he has been a faithful servant, and he has gone wherever he was called to go, and he has suffered under immense persecutions and difficulty because of it. He has faced difficulty day and night. He talks about the fact that he was whipped multiple times on behalf of God, that he was shipwrecked, and he was left to die multiple times. He was stoned once, and almost left to die. He has gone through trials and hardships and difficulty for the sake of Jesus over and over again, and all of that means nothing compared to who Jesus is. You see, if there were anyone who is only human and not also God, who had a right to possibly be boastful about the things he had done or gone through, it'd probably be Paul. And Paul says, I have no reason to boast. He gives up his own pride because he sees who Jesus is. If Paul wouldn't boast about those things, I don't think the accomplishments you have in video games are worth boasting about. I don't think the accomplishments I have as a dad are worth boasting about. I don't think the accomplishments I have as a husband, friend, pastor, as a jerk in high school are anything worth boasting about. If he can give up his pride, if Paul can give up his pride, I can give up mine. And I should. We should be willing to give it up, right? But even more so, talking about being willing to give up stuff, right? 
Jesus, at one point while he's talking to his disciples, discusses this concept with them and tells them that they need to be willing to give up literally everything, to deny themselves fully. And he actually says this to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I want you to consider that this to his disciples would have sounded absolutely ridiculous. Do you know why? He hadn't been crucified yet. They had no idea what he was talking about. They're like, maybe he's being metaphoric in some weird, silly way, right? I don't know. That'd be the equivalent of me, Chris Dewar, saying, if any of you would come and follow me, what I need you to do is go ahead and grab an electric chair and drag it around with you everywhere you go, right? And follow me. And you're like, this makes very little sense, right? That statement doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Unless you'd seen me doing things that looked extremely godly. Oh, goodness, the wind and the waves obey him. Huh, he made food out of nothing. He changed one substance into another. He raised people from the dead. And then he died in that way. <laughs> and he was like, oh, when he said take up his cross and follow him, he might have been literal, guys. He might have been saying literally be ready to die like I'm going to die. Please note, he says that you are to deny yourself. Deny what you want. Because let's be honest here. Who here wants to die? Looking forward to it? No? Who would be interested in dying in an excruciatingly painful manner? Not only can I promise you death, but I can promise you death that will take forever to you and will hurt so bad that they literally took the word and uh, they, they described, just so you guys know in English, the word for the most excruciating pain you can think of. Excruciating literally comes from excrucio, out of crucifixion. Like, that's where it comes from. The word excruciating was made to describe the pain that comes from that kind of death. No one wants that. No one wants to live a life looking forward to something like that. No one wants to live a life that, if that's the kind of hardship that he's using as his metaphor for what your life can be like, how difficult do you think life will be sometimes? Pretty difficult, right? Who wants that kind of difficulty in your life? Do you? No. But deny what you want you desire and be willing to follow him wherever he takes you, right? We talk a lot in city about this concept of stewardship, right? We talk about stewardship. And the question that stewardship asks is what belongs to God? What belongs to Jesus? Someone give me an answer here. What do you think belongs to Jesus? Everything, right? If everything is his, what is yours? Nothing. If he tells you that he wants your shoes to go to a person who is unshod, where do your shoes belong? They belong to that other person now because they didn't belong to you anyway. They belong to Jesus. And if Jesus wants that person to have them, that person gets them, Right? This goes for your food, your belongings, your money, your time, your energies, your desires, your passions, uh, everything. You only have them because of him. They're only under your sphere of influence because he has chosen to place them there for now. And he expects you to use that for his sake and not your own. And that means sometimes not doing the things you want to do, but doing things he wants you to do. Right? This can be super practical, guys. It can be something really easy, something like, I really want a new pair of pants. These orange camouflage ones just aren't working anymore. I don't know why, right? But there's another person who needs a coat. And you may really want those pants, but you don't have enough money for pants and or a coat. You have enough or, right? And then you are praying. And Jesus lays on your heart, this person really, really needs a coat. Well, what do you do? 
I guess I'm wearing orange camo pants a little bit longer. Do the thing that I want doesn't matter. What Jesus wants me to do with my money is what matters, right? Please note, this is not a plea for you to give all of your money to the church. I don't think Jesus wants you to do that. I would be lying if I were to say, and therefore, give us your stuff, have a good day, right? As a matter of fact, I can very much so think of times whenever God would want you to not give your resources to a local church and said, give them to another person or use them for a different way to glorify him. Now, I do also believe at times he calls for us to give to the local church. Hi, please. Uh, but do so in the way he's called you to, humbly. And I don't mean that as a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't mean that like, oh, I have to do it just the way Jesus wants me to, so I'm not going to. No, actually talk to him about it and ask him about it and pray for it, for his knowledge of what to do with your finances. And you may hear, I want you to bless this local church. You may learn I want you to bless another person. You may learn a bunch of things. I would bet if you pray earnestly and hardly for what you're called to do with your money, we would probably all spend it a little differently. Right? I highly doubt and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. But I highly doubt Jesus wants me to be spending more money on books right now. If I were actually talking to him and praying and paying attention and asking, what am I supposed to be doing with my money? What am I supposed to be doing with the money that you place under my control? He would probably respond back, well, you've got plenty of reading material already. You've got more books than you will read in a lifetime. You don't need any more. Go read some of the crap you have. Use that money for a different purpose. Maybe you'd show me what the actual purpose is. Maybe you wouldn't, but I'd be a little bit wiser. Right? Sometimes we need to give up things for his sake. Now, if Jesus owns everything. Let's talk about kingship and rule and authority real quick. If Christ is the king, what's he the king of? What's he the king of? Everything, right? The phrase king of kings literally means the king above and over every king, the one who reigns over everything, right? If Jesus is Lord, what is he Lord of? everything, right? It is all his. It's all about him and not us. How would our way of working with politics in this country look if every Christian wholly believed that Christ is Lord of all? and over top of every ruler and authority and principality and over top of everyone, that if we were to follow Christ first, how much different would the way in which we engage in political discussions change? I'm not arguing this from one direction. I think Christians on both sides of the political spectrum mess this up. And we engage with our politics first and then try and shove Christ onto it afterwards. I'm a Republican who's a Christian. I'm a Democrat who's a Christian. I'm a Libertarian who's a Christian. Nope. I'm a Christian. And that is right for it to inform the way in which I look at politics. But Christ matters first. And the things that he cares about, I'm called to care about. And the things that he didn't find important at all, I probably shouldn't find important. There are very, very, very few things that we in our culture are dealing with today that were not also occurring in the Roman culture. Basically, the internet. Everything else was dealt with in some way, shape, or form, right? People were messed up. People would hurt each other. People needed cared for. People were mean. People were hurtful. None of that changed. People had a lot of reason to be afraid. 
in Christ's day. But Christ never called for people to allow their fear to be the thing that defines the way in which they function. Next, Christ is Lord of all. That's actually the thing I got whenever I turned 18. You see, I had understood that Jesus was important. I had understood that what he did was awesome and that he saved me. But I finally, at that point, understood this concept, and that is this. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that he rose from the dead, we are saved. And whenever it says confess that he is Lord, it means bear witness to the fact that he is Lord of everything, especially your life. See, my life prior to that did not bear witness to the fact that he was my Lord. It didn't. It bore witness to the fact that I believed who he was, but also wanted to retain my own jerkiness. Wanted to retain my own uh, independence. It didn't bear witness to him. It bore witness to who I was. And then following that time, following that time in Buffalo, I finally understood that my life is not supposed to be about me. Did I learn it perfectly? And from that point on, everything I ever did was great? No. Oh, my goodness. What was that? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I had a lot to learn. I had a lot of growing to do. You can learn things and you can grow and you can understand stuff about yourself, but you still have to realize that you know, at times, oh, this is going to be a process. Sometimes we expect conversion experiences to look like this. There's a small chance that was me because I'm getting a phone call right now. Uh, Anna, if a 234 number rings again, can you answer? It's that young lady we talked about. Thank you. Where, where was I at? Jesus, right. Yeah. Thanks, that solves it. I know exactly where I was in my train of thought right there. Um, Buffalo, right? Learning about Jesus being Lord, right? I've always been perfect since then. Right, we're right there. We know this. Y'all have known me long enough to realize I've been perfect. I'm so lying right now, it's not even funny. Anywho, I got it. We sometimes expect conversion experiences to look like this. We expect them to look like uh, what Paul's look like, right? Max, we've seen this. Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priests, and he requested <laughs> clothes. We're back. We're back. Okay. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high pri- Why are you doing that again? Stop it. Stop it. It's not going to stop it. There we go. And asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And Paul was converted, and immediately went and began preaching forever. And everyone became followers of Jesus because of his immediate understanding of who Jesus was. Right? Wrong. (laughs) Now, first of all, Paul wasn't the only person in his conversion story that had to listen to Jesus and do what he was told to do, right? So Paul wanted to do something good for God. But Paul, at least if you think about it, even with that, he was trying to glorify God just badly. Please note, I want you to remember this. Sometimes it's possible to be so zealous about glorifying God that you do things that are horrible and don't actually glorify Him. Remember that don't stab people. Seriously. Right? Christianity has been used many times to stab people in the past. Please don't stab people. Ta-da! That's my takeaway for today. 
if you walk away with don't stab people, and that you didn't know before, I am glad you walked away with that, okay? There's another person in this story, right? Now, there was a disciple at Damascus, a man named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So first of all, I want you to just look at the difference between what happened to Paul whenever he encountered God, which was fell on his face, smacked, had no idea who he was talking to, and then ended up blind, right? Now Ananias encounters God, and he says, here I am. I'm ready. Here I am, Lord. Fun story, just real quick, anytime you ever want to, just, just look up the phrase, here I am, Lord, like in Google, and see just how often that phrase bounces up in the Old Testament. Whenever someone calls, whenever God calls, and the person who is willing and listening and able snaps at attention and says, here I am, I'm right here. Fun story. If God were to come to you today and show up in a vision and tell you to do something, would you know him well enough to not get smacked in the face and thrown to the ground? And would your response be, here I am. Use me for whatever you want to do. He says, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias says, Lord, here I am. He says, I've got, I've got a job for you. And Ananias is like, what, whatever. And he's like, all right, I've got you, you got to go to this one street. Got it. Street called Straight. Got it. All right. And I want you to look for the house of a man named Judas. Got it. I'm there. All right, I'm on the... And from there, once you look for a man from Tarsus, okay, name Saul. Wait a minute. He's had a vision about you. You're going to heal his sight. I didn't know he was blind. Dude's been doing a lot of work in Jerusalem for a blind dude. Right? News didn't travel very fast in those days, guys. This information is just dropped on Ananias. Whose response was, here I am. Now, he questions. Please note. He says, are you sure? <laughs> I've heard a lot about this guy. I've heard a ton about him. How much evil he's done to the Christians around. He has authority to bind uh, me. He has authority to arrest me. If I show up and say, Jesus told me to talk to you, he can arrest me. Take him back to the high priest. And if you know what happens to people who are followers of Jesus, when they're brought before the high priests, please note this Directly after, a follower named Stephen was brought before the high priests and killed while Paul stood there and gave approval to what was happening. This is what Ananias faces by going there. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine and will carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We'll get back to that last sentence in a second because it's a doozy, right? But anywho, we talk a lot about the immense impact Paul had on the church, right? One of his followers, Luke, wrote one of the Gospels. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The majority of actual doctrine we have as a church comes from his writing because while the gospel writers spoke about who Jesus is and what he did, Paul got into the nitty-gritty of what that means in daily life, more so than basically any author besides John, right? Ananias had immense impact on the church, and for those of us who are here who are not ethnically Jewish, we are here largely because of the influence he had on the church. Paul did so much. How often do we hear about Ananias, the guy who, by following God, 
being willing to deny himself, being willing to walk into a place where he could be arrested and thrown into jail, going to a place where he has to go and show compassion and love to a man who previously had killed Christians and who obeyed. And because of his words and work, Paul understood more about who Jesus is and what he's done. You see, if he had said, no, I don't want to do that. My life is more important to me. I'm not willing to go and talk to that person. It wouldn't just have affected Paul. It could have affected the entire world. His willingness to obey affected the entire world for God's glory. So please know I'm enough of a Calvinist to wholly believe that Jesus would have done it in some way, shape, or form, and it was basically not at all uh, on Ananias that if Ananias wouldn't have done this, God would have used someone else who would have. But to us, that's not what it looks like. It looks like Ananias heard, obeyed, listened, and because of it, Paul converted. And the words he spoke to Paul was, go tell him he is my chosen instrument to carry the gospel to Gentiles. Again, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, one who was zealous of the law and one who was passionate to see God proclaimed uh, to the Israelites is now going to go to not the Israelites and be God's chosen instrument to carry God out there. And then here is the big one. The message that Ananias carried to Paul and that Paul's mission in life was then basically based off of was this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. How uplifting is that, guys? You want to be a follower of Jesus? Awesome. Let me tell you how much you're going to suffer because of it. It's going to be rough. Remember, we spoke about this. Shipwrecks, beatings, whippings, uh, stonings. Uh, people persecuting him, going hungry and thirsty, uh, having no shelter many times. Uh, that, that's what he suffered for the sake of Jesus. Jesus told him it was going to happen before he started. And he went anyway. Now, please note, I do want to say this as well. I'm a big proponent of giving people reasonable expectations. Right? Have you guys ever seen someone be given a bad set of expectations and how much it tends to hurt, right? I have a friend who used to tell me that people's contentment in life is based heavily off of how much their expectations actually line up with reality, right? Because if reality is horrible and you expect reality to be horrible, you're content with life, right? No, this is what I expected. All right, happens. But if life is good and you expect it to be great, there's a pretty big gap there, and you may not be content with life, even if your life is better than the person down here, right? Jesus set up some good expectations for Paul. <laughs> hey, I struck him blind, knocked him off his horse, made him go three days and three nights without sight, and made him sit in the city waiting and mourning about what he did, and then I told him he's going to go and suffer. <laughs> he's going to suffer. This isn't even suffering yet. This is just getting started. Paul had some pretty good expectations for what his life was going to look like. He also had reason to do it anyway, right? Uh, if we, in our call to tell people about Jesus, which followers of Christ, by the way, you all have an expectation to do that. You're supposed to be telling people about Jesus in some way, shape, or form. If you were telling them in this format, hey, I've got something to tell you. All right, your life doesn't belong to you. It's not your own. Someone bought you and purchased you at a price, uh, and you are going to suffer immensely because of following this and believing it, Right? You on board? Now, we may think there's no way people would follow. No one would listen to that message. It's stupid. It's foolish. Which the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Paul literally says that. It's foolish. But on the flip side, how many people do you know who started following Jesus at a younger age or whenever they were at one point a little bit older and they learned from a place that taught them that if they just pray perfectly, they'll get whatever they desire and want? If they just believe well enough, they'll have faith to do whatever they want. And then they prayed really hard for something they want 
and didn't get that thing. Maybe that thing is healing. Maybe that thing is uh, for a loved one to not die. Maybe that thing is for someone who is sick to be better. Maybe that thing is for uh, someone to have enough to survive food-wise, right? And they pray earnestly and hard for it. And they don't get what they want. And their expectation doesn't match up with reality. And they are hurt and disappointed and incontent in their life because of it. And if instead we said, you know what? It is difficult. It is hard. Your life will not be perfect. You will still deal with the results of sin in this world. You will still deal with the fact that uh, as of now, death still has a grip on this place and sin still has a grip on this place and imperfection has a grip on this place. And because of it, you will experience hardship and difficulty and persecution. And you will experience seeing people that you love die because pretty much everyone sees that at some point, guys. Like, you will experience these things. But in the end, it'll be worth it. Because in the end, he'll return and fix it. In the end, death will not reign. In the end, sin does not reign. In the end, Christ reigns. And our life now is just pointing to what's going to happen then. We are not promised perfection now. We are not promised a life without the effects of sin and death now. We are promised hope for the future. Having said all of that, all of this, one thing that pops up is why. Why should we do this? Why should we give up of our own wants, needs, and desires for the sake of others? Why should we be willing to give up our very lives for the sake of other people? Why should we live lives in humble service to those around us? Why would we ever give up of ourselves to the point that we're willing to do those things? If only there was someone whose example we could follow. You see, we give up because he first gave up, right? Please know this. God didn't have to die. He didn't need to. Come on, guys, he could have snapped his fingers and remade a different creation. Oop, oh, y'all are gone, new one. Start over. He didn't need to. He doesn't need us. We are not necessary for his happiness, contentment, or enjoyment. We are not necessary for him to be who he is. We're not necessary for him to be all in all. He is everything with or without us. He is perfect with or without us. He is good with or without us. He didn't need to be born a man. He didn't need to live a perfect life. He didn't need to die on our behalf for his own sake. He did that for us. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down or offer up his life for a friend. There is no greater love than to give oneself up for another. And he is perfect love, and he perfectly gave himself up for us. Seriously. I'm not even joking about that one a little bit, guys. Whenever I say he gave himself up for us, uh, two, two different verses here. Please apologize. I'm going to probably jump around multiple times. I do not mean to flash to you uh, any kind of giving stuff or whatnot again. But it might happen. In Hebrews 7, it says this, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily for, for his own sins and then those of the people, for his own sins and then those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. He had no need to offer sacrifices for himself or for others. He didn't need to. He said he offered himself up for us. He gave himself up for you and me. Like, literally, when Jesus received his sour wine on the cross, Jesus has been crucified, he is sitting up there, and he is about to die he says it is finished, and he bows his head, and he gave up his own spirit. 
No one took Jesus' life from him. He offered it of his own accord. And if you think that's not true, please just rewind back a little bit to the Garden of Gethsemane whenever the whole group of people came to arrest Jesus and the disciples are all like, no, and try to cut off people's heads and whatnot and miss and cut off an ear. And Jesus is like, stop it and puts that ear back on because he does that sort of stuff. And they're like, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, I am. I am he, I exist. And at the sound of his voice, the people who were standing there to arrest him were blown backwards off their feet and laying down before him. <laughs> Hi, we're looking for Jesus. I'm Jesus. <laughs> Floored. And then they stand themselves back up on shaky legs. And Jesus says, who are you looking for? <laughs> and they say, Jesus. And he says, let's go. And he goes with them. Did he have to go with them? Was he arrested against his own will? Do you think there was a big enough crowd there to scare him and he just had to follow? No. He could knock him over with his voice. He didn't have to go anywhere. He chose to go. He was on a cross. He didn't have to stay on that cross. At one point, uh, whenever people are asking Jesus what, they're like saying, send the angels to come and take him off there if he's good. God will do that if he's supposed to, right? But prior to this, at one point, Peter was talking to him and trying to save him, and Jesus is like, hey, don't you know that if I wanted to, legions of angels would come and save me right now? I could just call down 12 legions worth of angels, which is like 12,000 angels, to show up and wipe everyone out. If I want to, I can do that. He chose not to. He chose to stay on the cross. And please note, he did not deserve to die. He had never done anything worthy of death. He didn't have to die. He didn't die because of the actions of people against him. He chose to offer himself up. He gave up his own life for the sake of others. He gave up his own freedom for the sake of others. He gave up his own lack of pain for the sake of others. He gave up what he didn't have to give up for the sake of people who super needed him to give that up. This goes back into how he lived his life, too. He didn't just give up his life and death. He served in life, too. In John 13, we see Jesus, prior to Gethsemane, sitting with his disciples and having a meal with them. And it says, Jesus, knowing that his time had come to leave this world, decided to show his disciples the full extent of his love. And therefore, he stood up from his meal, stripped off his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. An act, if you don't know, that was reserved for the lowest member of a household in honor or the lowest-ranking servant in a household if people are wealthy enough to have servants. So Jesus took on well, a role that would have been normally held onto for a slave or for the youngest child in a house. And Jesus did it himself. This is God himself kneeling before a man to serve and wash them because of his love. The only one in the world who ever had anything to be proud of the only one who had ever done good in everything, the only one who deserved perfect service, the only one who deserved to have everyone bowing before him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom every tongue will confess and every knee will bow at one point, knelt down before men and served them. Not because he had to, because he wanted to. And he said to his disciples, you have seen how I have loved you. Go and love others. No student is better than their teacher. If I have done this to you, go and do this to each other. Go and serve each other. Christ gave up his pride, gave up his uh, station, gave up everything to serve and to save 
everyone. If that was not beneath him, what is beneath you to give up? Nothing, right? So, what's our takeaway on this? Galatians 2.20 again. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ. In Christ's death, I have died. And I no longer live. But Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Take a look at your life and see if that applies to you. Because Paul wasn't perfect when he wrote that. This isn't Jesus talking in the Bible. This isn't an unattainable goal. This isn't something that's beyond you as a person. This is how you're called to live. Paul at one other point says this, and then I'm done, I promise. At one point he says, my life is not my own. I have been bought at a price. I have been purchased at a price. Christ himself purchased you with his own life, his perfect service, his choice to suffer and die. He did to purchase you back from the grave. You have been purchased at an extremely high price, meaning God himself finds you very valuable. And he was willing to pay everything to have a relationship with you. When you realize what God paid for you, what is there that you're not willing to give up for him? Does that make sense? Okay. So as we take communion today, as we worship today, and as we go throughout our week, remember this most practical of practical theological points. When you're trying to figure out how in life to demonstrate Christ to the world, or when you're trying to figure out how in your life to become more and more like Jesus, the answer is this. Just give up. Amen? And we're done.